WGNS, Murfreesboro. Do you feel politically homeless, lost in the chaos of modern politics, not sure who to believe? Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Democrats call him a Republican. Republicans call him a socialist. He is Stephen Reynolds, the man in the middle. Welcome to the Man in the Middle podcast, season two. I'm Stephen Reynolds, your host, recording today from the historic WGNS studios located in the heart of the great volunteer state, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, it's Sunday, August the 23rd, as we record this podcast. And first off, I'd like to give a shout out to a group out in West Rutherford County, uh, a group of uh, residents that's talking about a proposed racetrack, uh, another racetrack in this area. Uh, that could be potentially coming up. If you'd like to learn more about that organization, it's called blockthetrack.org. And we will be having some of those folks on our show as a special guest to talk about uh, this proposed raceway that could be coming in the middle of a residential area here in Rutherford County. But we're going to get back to our main goal here, and that's to talk about the candidates and politics of the people of Tennessee. Joining me today is my guest, Miss Sheila Younglove. She is a candidate for Tennessee Senate District 16, which is Warren County. And Sheila, I may have to get you to tell me the other counties. I know it's Coffee and part of Franklin. Uh, but uh, anyway, she uh, we have a lot of listeners in Warren County, Coffee County, Franklin County. And so we thought it would be a great idea to get Sheila on uh, to come talk about her candid- candidacy and her campaign for the Tennessee State Senate. Sheila, Sheila Younglove, welcome to The Man in the Middle. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm glad to be here today. Yes, ma'am. Well, well, thank you so much. Well, Sheila, tell folks a little bit about you and your background and um, why you decided to run for Tennessee State Senate. Okay. Uh, well, I am originally from Flint, Michigan. I was born there. My parents were native Tennesseans. Uh, they were uh, they hailed from DeKalb County, Tennessee and moved to Michigan after World War II when all the car plants were you know, really ramping up their production, like a lot of people went to Ohio and Tennessee. Some came back. My parents stayed. Um, They had eight kids and I was the youngest. And um, unfortunately, my father passed away when I was three. My mother passed away when I was eight. So there were four of us underage and we were sent to Tennessee and separated um, between my mother's sisters to be raised. Um, I grew up in McMinnville and um, felt like it was a fortunate spot for me. And, you know, didn't get to see my siblings much, but, you know, I've learned that sometimes biology is stronger than uh, your nurture. And we're all so much alike, it's not even funny. Um, (laughs) You know, you you see personality traits in each other and you're like, how could this possibly happen if we weren't raised together? But it does. Right. So, that's how I got to be in Tennessee. And I graduated from Warren County High School here. And much later, after my uh, children were in high school, I went to college mm-hmm. in TSU, graduated there, summa cum laude, and went on to Nashville School of Law and obtained my law, li- my law degree and then my law license. I've been practicing for about three years now. 
And I primarily do uh, family law. And when I say family law, I don't mean just divorce. I mean anything from adoption through divorce, you know, cleanups, guardianships, conservatorships, all the way through your estate. So if it has to do with your family, I do it. Well, that's, so, yeah, that's that's a great introduction. Um, of course, uh, WGNS Radio, where we're recording this, we're the flagship for MTSU. I'm also alumni of Middle Tennessee State. And uh, so anyway, uh, and you went on and you're you're a lawyer now. And um, how, how long have you been practicing now, Sheila? Yeah. And then to law school. I was a paralegal during all that time anyway. So I've been in, involved in law since I was 17 years old. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know that when we had the, the uh, pre-show conversation, it's really quick to pick up that, that you are an attorney. And um, so anyway, Sheila, let's just start. I always ask my guest, uh, when you're elected, what is the one issue that you hope to accomplish or that you wish to accomplish for the people of your district and for the people of Tennessee? I would say that the number one um, thing I want to accomplish is expanding Medicaid so that more of our working poor will have health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. I think that will help more than just them. It'll help the hospitals, too. It, it sure will. As you and I have talked about the uh, dire financial situation of even some of the strongest hospitals here in Tennessee, this is all breaking news. A lot of folks don't understand uh, the economic impact the virus is having on our hospitals. Um, so let's talk about that expanding Medicaid a little bit. What would that cost the taxpayer, or what would that cost the taxpayers in your district, Sheila? Would that what, what's that going to cost them? Zero. Zero dollars. So we could expand Medicaid. We could get about four hundred thousand, half a million more people covered in the state yes, of Ten- in the state of Tennessee, and it would cost us zero dollars. And you know, people say, "No, that that's you don't get it." You know, there's no such thing as a, a free lunch. Well, the government, the federal government pays 90% of that, okay? Right. But the states are normally supposed to pay the other 10%, but the Hospital Association in Tennessee has uh, stepped up, sorry, and said that they would pay the other 10%. Yeah, now isn't that something that the hospitals want to take on that 10%? Because they think it's so important to the vitality of the people here that they're willing to do that. I think that really says a lot. I think it speaks to how important Medicaid expansion is um, for the hospitals as well, because they don't want to close down. You know, people in these rural counties need good medical care. Yes, and and, and I think want to close down. Yes, and 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 doesn't an uninsured person cost really cost the taxpayers two or three times more than if they were in, enrolled in a program? Absolutely, because they go to an ER for their medical care of any sort, mm-hmm. and you know they can't turn them away. Right. So we end up bearing that burden. The hospital doesn't get reimbursed anything from Medicare, Medicaid. So that's one of the reasons why the hospitals in the rural areas have been hurting so much. So if you you take Medicaid expansion, you apply it to the people that, you know, it should cover. And that, by the way, includes about 90,000 veterans in our state. And you say, well, they had the VA. Well, yes, they had the VA, but you can get an appointment six to nine months out 
but what if you need something now? Right. Once again, you know? they end up in the emergency room and cost and the rest of us. So, you know, that cycle repeats. Mm -hmm. So it's so important, I think, to get that tackled first. Yes. And it's money that's just there waiting for us. So it to me, it seems ludicrous to pass it by when there are so many folks in need. And we're not talking about the people who qualify for 10 care. Because uh, if you qualify for 10 care, then you don't qualify for Medicaid expansion necessarily. But what you can do is you can take some of the adults that are under 10 care and slide them over to Medicaid expansion, thus saving the state money on 10 care. Wow. Yeah. So, so we're really doing this the expensive way is what you're trying to say, right, Miss Young Love? Yes, that's exactly right. Right now we're doing it the expensive way. And wouldn't you think that, way. yeah, wouldn't you think that a conservative Republican would want to save money? One would think, uh, but it is a thing that sometimes if it has anything to do with a possible Democrat name on it, you know, they'd rather cut their nose off. Yeah, and that's I true. I mean, uh, Bill Haslam tried to pass this. Yes. And your opponent, Janice Bowling, uh, did she vote for it or did she vote against it? Oh, no, she was against it. She voted against she, it. Mm -hmm. He was one of the four main senators in the final vote that stabbed him in the back on it. Yeah, wow. And, 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 and that. Yeah, yeah. And so they really had a chance to get it done. And, and of course, now they mm -hmm. won't even bring it to the floor. And, of course, you know, I don't know if Bill Lee knows if he's coming or going right now, just to be honest with you. Well, I'm honest with you, too. But, you know, at the time that Haslam um, introduced that, the federal government paid 100% of the cost. Yeah, wow. Wow. So let's not pass it then. Let's wait till now where it's down to 90%. And thank God the hospital association has stepped up and said, we'll pay that other 10% for the love of God. Please get it. Right. Um, but right. they, you know, have not done that. Right. And you said something about Governor Lee. Um, you know, I, I don't know what's going on with him. I had great hopes for him. Me too. I really did. And it seems like he's, He's doing a lot of cutting his nose off despite his face lately with wanting to make um, protesting a felony and yeah. losing your right to vote because you protest. It's like, what? Yeah, right. That is so unconstitutional. And here we're going to spend thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Probably millions. No. And it will be defeated because it's unconstitutional. Just like the heartbeat bill. Exactly. Passed. Mm -hmm. Under the cloak of darkness, mm -hmm. and you know, when everybody else was in their bed asleep, it was almost like the Grinch that stole Christmas. Right. Um, and then, it, you know, passed that legislation, right. Right. and it's it's a legislation that the majority of people that I've spoken to, Republican, Democrat, and other creeds, have said they didn't want. Right, right. Because some people don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Yeah, right. Right. Like, what are you going to do here now? That's it's just it's going to be overturned, right? Of course, and and so while we're bailing out, uh, while we're rolling out the laundry list of unconstitutional bills passed recently passed by the Tennessee State Legislature, let's move on to the COVID liability bill that was oh a big pet project of mine, Sheila. And I really want to know where you stand on this COVID liability bill. And I want to ask you some questions about that. But first, I want your initial impression on that. <laughs> you know, uh, 
I don't think that it, it's going to pass muster. I really don't because you're asking people who are in an inferior position to accept such a draconian uh, practice as waiving liability. If you're forcing people to go into a dangerous situation, you're waiving, making them waive liability when they really don't have the power to say no. Yeah, right, especially if you're deemed an essential worker. That's exactly right. And so, so well, we're going to ask you to risk your life, but uh, you know, if you get it and you die because we made you go in and do this and we didn't give you proper equipment and all this stuff, then too bad for you. Right, right. Uh, very similar to uh, calling the sock mask PPE or a personal protective equipment. We all know these are not certified uh, in any sort of way, but yet we continue to hear the mantra that we are providing, especially in the teachers in the school systems, uh, certified PPE. So um, let me it's ask. Also have chemicals in them that are harmful. Yeah, to yeah right, right. <laughs> well, I'm going to get you. We'll give you chemicals to breathe in all during the day. That you know, maybe you'll get lung cancer from that. But you can't sue us. Yeah, right. Because we give you PPE. Right. So Sheila, let me ask you about this. Um, the rate of this this COVID liability law talks about. The, that that you, that businesses, entities, organizations must operate inside the CDC guidelines. Mm-hmm. But currently, ninety four of ninety five counties in the state of Tennessee are outside of the CDC guidelines, just based on transmission rate alone. Of yes, the, sir. Of the transmission rate. So essentially, Miss Younglove, are all of our school systems that are open, are they in a very precarious situation as far as liability goes right now? Because it can be very easily proved that we open these schools outside of the transmission rate guidelines offered by the CDC. And so doesn't that immediately disqualify them from any sort of liability shield that the governor may have passed? I think it does. Yeah, I do too. I think that we've started schools back too early. Yeah, we're asking too much. I, you know, I don't know if it's a thing of oh, we must start school back in August because that's just how we've always done it. Well, we're in unprecedented times. Right. Is it going to kill us to wait six more months? Right. You know, um, and hopefully bring the the transmission rates down and hopefully have a vaccine. Right. And by the way, I you know I seriously doubt that any vaccine will have a microchip in it to track us. Oh yeah, that's some good QAnon stuff there. Yeah, yes, and it just drives me nuts when people do that. But um, absolutely, but but your 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 counties and and go from uh, tell me again the counties that you represent Warren and Coffee. Okay, yeah, yes, it's Warren, Coffee, Van Buren, Grundy. Marion, Franklin, and Sequatchie. Okay. So um, are any of those school systems, do they have a giant reserve of cash that is set back in the sad event that a teacher or a student gets sick and dies from COVID from opening the schools? Not to my knowledge. So do you believe as an attorney that if this unfortunately were to happen, and and honestly, Sheila, I think it's just a matter of time, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, before it does happen, um, the, 
in your business, typically they would say, "Case, there, there's we can't go to trial. We can't afford to go to trial. We have to settle this immediately." Sheila, what does these school districts value a life at? Do you have any idea? Is it a half a million dollars? Is it a million dollars? Is it five million dollars? No. What what you look at in terms of valuing life, okay? Uh-huh. And this yep. sounds awful, but this is how it is. Sure. You look at somebody's uh, earnings potential. Okay. Uh, somebody who is older, like much older in their 70s or 80s, are not worth as much financially right. as someone who is 25. Right. Because, you know, they've already had most of their lifespan to earn whatever they're going to earn. Mm-hmm. So whatever's left, you know, it's like, okay, they don't need this much more money to, you know, for the rest of their life. Right. But you have a 25-year-old come up and, yes, you know, they may have some permanent uh, damage because of something like COVID. Yeah. So, yes, their life would be worth more. Right. And then you look at children mm-hmm. with unrealized potential. And I think that that gets into a whole new uh, set of problems because then you've got your actuarials and your economists going, okay, wait a minute. Um, This was a a school age child and we don't know what they would have become, you know, so it's very difficult, very difficult. And it's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to happen, unfortunately. And, um, you know, the University of Tennessee, the Howard Baker Public Policy Center, which is not exactly a bastion of liberal thought, just for anyone out there that might uh, think that it is. Howard Baker was a Republican, after all. Mm -hmm. Um, But they value life, uh, according to the GDP, they say that each life, each Tennessean's life is worth about nine million bucks. Uh, oh, wow. based on the lifetime contribution to the gross domestic pop product of this country. And um, so anyway, Sheila, is anyone out there, Do you what would happen to the Coffee County school system that I'm a graduate of if they're hit with a $10 million lawsuit? They can't handle it. Now, they may have some insurance. Right. They can't handle all the claims that are coming their way. Yeah, exactly. And so, wouldn't the most conservative thing to do would be to protect our school systems from this liability? It, when you look at the big picture, it may not be a convenient thing to have schools closed right now, mm-hmm. but it's a whole lot more fiscally responsible mm-hmm. to keep them closed right now since you don't have internet. And all these rural counties, and some of the counties that I, my district will cover, um, have, some of them have spots of internet, but they don't have it all the way through the county. Right. So you're not teaching online and, and reaching every student. Um, so how about we wait a little while? It's not going to kill us to wait a while. It might kill us if we don't wait a while. Um, very likely will kill us, like we're doing now. Um, so we're going to go ahead and push ahead and say, well, you know, um, we just we want you to start now, but if something bad happens, it probably could have been avoided if we had just been a little bit more patient and waited. Um, you're out of luck. Yeah, yeah, and you know I've done a lot of research on this during the Spanish flu of of 1917, 1918. Every school in the country was closed for 12 months, except for three. 
uh, in some of the bigger cities. And of course, they had major outbreaks as a result of that. Uh, th- as you know, this is basic biology. So, so we, we're really getting down to it, Miss Younglove. This is really before we can do anything, before we can bring internet access, before we can get this economy going again, we have to get this virus under control. Yeah, because right now it's controlling us. Yeah, exactly. And in your opinion, has the Tennessee State Legislature done an, a responsible job to the people of Tennessee? I don't believe they have on this. Yeah, I don't think so either. I don't think I, so I really either. Don't. It, it saddens me of some of the things that they have just chosen not to look at, mm-hmm. chosen not to take seriously, or... If they try, if some of them have tried, um, even some of the Republican senators have tried to do stuff and their comrades have just completely turned their back on them. Yeah. Senator Sarah Kyle is one of my favorite Tennessee state senators. She's out of Memphis. I, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to meet Miss. I don't know her yet. Well, she is a real joy and just something else. When she did a speech on the floor, which would be something that you'll be doing. And she um, she talked about the cost to the Tennessee taxpayers uh, about this liability shield and how this was actually going to exponentially increase the cost to the taxpayers. And she, I think that you know, anything else you'd like to add on that? How can we get our citizens to understand that ultimately this is going to raise their property taxes? It's going to raise every tax it's going to devastate even more small businesses um and like you said uh, st thomas rutherford is having issues financially right now yes um in warren county our hospital is owned by st thomas right you know the whole chain of hospitals uh it's it's going to end up everybody losing Mm -hmm. and i'm going to tell you right now um if i get the opportunity to get on that floor I will not be popular yeah. because I will speak my mind and say, are you kidding me? Yeah. You would rather do this just because, you know, you're afraid somebody might accuse you of having a, what an independent thought than take care of the people of our state. Yeah. And isn't that really when you raise your right hand on the, on the Bible and the constitution, isn't that really what you're upholding the oath is to defend the safety of the people of Tennessee? You're, you're, you're taking a sacred oath, and I took it as an attorney, to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the state of Tennessee, all the laws promulgated under that, and the reason for those laws is to protect the people of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think COVID falls right there with it. Yeah, We are not protecting our people when we're insisting that they do something that we should realize, I mean, it's just not difficult to realize that this is not a good idea right now. Yeah, it's, it's a high school biology is what it is. I mean, it, I mean, it is. It, and, it, it's just, and even the math of it, you know, I'm not great at math. I'll be the first to admit, but even I can figure out that this is a not a winner on math. Uh, it's going to cost more than we could ever, ever, you know, realize by putting off the school year. Um, unless somebody wants to really go ahead and let the co-ops in these various counties provide internet access so that all the students can have access. But even with that, you're going to have kids at home whose parents 
uh, work schedules are such that they can't help them mm-hmm. or that they're just not able to help them. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. their child come to them with, with a topic that they're just like, you know, I really know nothing about this topic. Right. So, so what's really, ahead. yeah, what what's really at stake right now is not only the life and prosperity of our people, but actually the future of yes. our state. Yeah. Talk yeah. about the future a little bit. Uh, Sheila, what, what would you like to see? We've been talking about bringing broadband to the rural areas for a long time now. Just think of what we could have accomplished had no. we not had the communications associations and various companies purchasing our politicians. What could Where could we be now? Well, for one thing, it would have helped in this situation, with as we were discussing the COVID uh, situation. It would have also helped, I think, with um, bringing jobs to this area, mm-hmm. you know, you you really don't have much to offer uh, companies to come to our state if you don't have the infrastructure. Correct. And having that broadband is part of that infrastructure. It's a very important part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have um, adequate health care, you know, if you don't have proper funding for your students and for your teachers and and your law enforcement you know if, if you don't take care of those core things you're not going to bring jobs to the state that we so desperately need absolutely absolutely and, you know right now we could have had it um my understanding is that one of our senators from tennessee um kind of helped to block that from happening and i don't understand the logic behind that mm-hmm. It just completely evades me how somebody could say, oh, okay, you don't want us to have you know, broadband all over the state of Tennessee? Okay, we won't. Yeah, that, that's because the communications companies write bigger checks than the electric co-ops do. That's really that simple, Sheila. I mean, that's, that's really that, that so simple. Sad that you would put that ahead of what is best for your state. Isn't, isn't that the truth? And that's really what's on the line here. You, you, touched, you touched about the economy. Um, you touched on infrastructure. Let's talk about those jobs. You just talked about how we get those types of jobs to District 16. And uh, t- let's go into that a little bit more. Uh, do you believe that we should offer tax abatements for companies to relocate here in the state of Tennessee? Well, we have done that. We did that for Amazon. Mm-hmm. You know, they came to uh, Rutherford County. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talked about going to one of the counties in my district, actually. But then they were um, given a much better deal, I think, to go to Rutherford County. So they did. Mm-hmm. And I think that, yes, Tax write-offs are helpful, mm-hmm. certainly, but it doesn't mean that you should totally not tax them. Um, Jeff Bezos himself could afford to give everybody in the state, you know, a laptop or television or both and never even feel it. Uh, right. But he has all kinds of tax cuts here. Right. Right. He actually has a division set up to for tax avoidance and actually to get money from the government and to find the areas that will give him the most money so that he will set up there. Uh, even though uh, now one of the things that I've talked about with my previous guest about technology and these tax abatements, do you think there should be a litmus test, some sort of 
automation test on these jobs that are coming in and they say, okay, we're going to provide 500 jobs for this tax abatement. But then five years after that, all of those jobs are eliminated to technology uh, because the technology has advanced. Ms. Love, do you agree that there should be some sort of standard uh, before the state of Tennessee offers that an examination of how the longevity of these jobs, the quality of these jobs, and how long it will take technology to eliminate these jobs? I think there should. I think we have to do that. Um, otherwise, we're just setting ourselves and our citizens up for failure, mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, financial failure. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to have that because if you're – if you're setting it up so that technology takes over the, the jobs that people could have had, then, okay, you're making a corporation very wealthy mm-hmm. and you're bankrupting your citizens. Yeah, right. So you've, got to, you've got to set that. I think there have to be safeguards written into any sort of agreement, yeah. like you said. And I think that you've got to also uh, look at what we've got here that we can build upon that maybe has been ignored. Um, Just like, okay, I know that uh, one of the gentlemen in Tennessee that's running for U.S. Congress was talking about repurposing the TVA Mm -hmm. to provide the world-class broadband access to every community. But you've also got to invest in the infrastructure, uh, and that also means – you know, not just the broadband, but it also means your roads. It means, you know, the tax, the tax cuts mm-hmm. and maybe not privatizing so many things such as like, um, like prisons. Okay. For example, let's just take that. Sure. Um, and this is kind of a, a long and winding road to go down to, but let's hit some small parts of it. Sure. If we ended for-profit prisons, mm-hmm. okay, and they went back under the control of the state, mm-hmm. then you're going to possibly have the opportunity there, and I think that you would have the opportunity, to address certain issues of prisoners that the private prisons are not addressing, such as rehab, um, rewrite some of the criminal code to address you know, rehab and the drug problems that are still rampant in the private prisons. You know, I got a call one time a few years ago as a paralegal from a gentleman who was in a private prison. I was like, how are you calling me? And he said, from my cell phone. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, you have a cell phone in prison? He said, yeah, everybody here's got one. I said, they issue you one? He's like, no, people just bring them into you. We get them in here. Wow. And I was just incredulous. I thought, okay, Sheila, you are so naive. <laughs> but yeah, I was calling me from his private cell phone in a private prison. Wow. I was like, you're kidding me. So when you when you in the for, for-profit prisons, and nobody said prisons are supposed to be a for-profit situation anyway. Correct. We used to call them penitentiaries. Mm-hmm. Um, people aren't paying penitents for anything. They're uh, not being rehabilitated to become a... A contributing member to to society when they get out, but if you end the for-profit structure of the prisons and you redirect that money towards schools, I mean, now here's a novel thought. It's a dangerous thought to 
funding of our schools, paying our teachers better, and actually trying to rehabilitate someone. And I know that's a dirty word to, you know, actually help somebody. Yeah. Uh, contributing member of society, then I think you're going to realize better overall infrastructure of your employees, of your state, of the the things that you need to make all that work. Yeah, yeah, and I think so. I think so. I mean, what, what point is there in having prisons? I mean, unless we plan on rehabilitating the prisoners there, with yeah. the exception of the most violent and egregious crimes that may have been committed. Right. Uh, with the exception of that, but, uh, you know, what is the entire point of giving a prison sentence if we're not going to try to make that prisoner a better citizen when he reenters society? Yes. And if we don't, you know, then we have repeat customers. Of course. Uh, you know, I don't do criminal law. It's just right. not my thing. Right. Uh, my nephew does it. Uh, my boss does it. And that's primarily what they do. But the way the system is set up right now, they know who they're probably going to get, you know, in a, like a year or two for another crime and probably a more serious crime. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, it becomes almost supply and demand on that end of it. Sure. But we don't want it to be that way. We want it to be that people are being taught how to um, succeed in society. Right. And we talk about things like, um, well, let's, let's get real crazy and talk about what if we went to legalizing marijuana, whether it's for medicinal purposes or just overall, either way. Yep. And you provide, what, criminal forgiveness, mm-hmm. um, releasing currently incarcerated people who are in there for marijuana. Right. And you issue cards and licensure to people who are authorized to grow, mm-hmm. you're going to put a whole segment of the criminal population out of business. Yeah. But, right. but if you have rehabilitated them, then they can go on and do something else that is what? Yeah. Legal. Right. Right. Um, so so you're, you're pro-marijuana uh, legalization, pro-cannabis legalization. What would that mean to the agriculture? I know that your counties are big in agriculture there. What would that mean to the agricultural community? I think it would be an absolute boon to them. And, and let me let me clarify on the marijuana issue. Okay. I've never smoked marijuana. Okay. I don't see any reason why I need to. It's just not my thing. Sure. You know? But I do understand science says that, yes, it can help, you know, certain conditions. And people who have cancer and they have chemo and it helps them to not be so sick. Right. Uh, and they can, you know, eat again and and not feel so awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who have glaucoma have, you know, also touted the praises of medical marijuana. And I'm certain there are many yeah. other conditions. Yeah, Parkinson's disease is a really big one. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not my thing, mm-hmm. but I'm smart enough to know that it can provide a boon. I know that um, in Pueblo County, Colorado, yep. there was a, a study done um, that found that legalizing marijuana had such a positive impact on the economy of Pueblo County that uh, it contributed more than $58 million to the local economy, not the state economy, the local economy. Wow. 
Right. And while they, they said there was about 23 million of that in added cost to legalization, including law enforcement and social services, the county still ended up with a positive net of $35 million. Yeah. That, and now, and you've been around county governments. That is a large amount of money for a county oh my government. Word, yes. mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. my word. I cannot imagine you know, right. our local county government going, hey, y'all, we got $35 million extra. What do we do with it? Right, right. Yeah. But think about that. Legalizing it on the federal level, according to that study, um, could result in an additional one, one, <laughs> Let me say this correctly. One hundred five point six billion dollars between, and that study said between twenty seventeen and twenty twenty five. Okay, that figure included projections for business tax revenues, payroll withholdings, and a fifteen percent sales tax on that marijuana. Wow, and and yeah. and most places are at around. A th- 30% sales tax on marijuana. Their 15% is actually a very low rate. Yeah. And, and, and what we're talking about here is um, a species of plant that is as old as the earth. Yes. And so we're just talking about supporting basic agriculture here. It would do so much for local agriculture. You know, I, I remember as a kid, seeing farmers that grew tobacco, mm-hmm. you know, everybody hated going out there and have to cut that stuff and hang it up the barns. I just don't see that anymore around here. No, uh, I'm sure people gone. are doing it, but I don't see like I used to. Yeah, it's gone. You see a lot of cornfields, mm-hmm. you know, that are dedicated um, to um, ethanol in our, you know, gasoline that we put in our car right. and some to food, you know, but I think that that has taken over what we used to see, like with the tobacco products. And yes, you should not smoke, but people are doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if they're going it's legal to do in it, this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A tax on it. Right. If you're going to have marijuana, legalize it, put a tax on it. Absolutely. Just like any other agricultural goods. So, Sheila, we're at very low tech here. Let's move to high tech. Your district, I believe, is one of the ripest areas in the country for technological development. Not only are you home to the large technology center in Warren County that is state-of-the-art, producing more robotic students than um, anywhere else in the state, but you're also the home to the AEDC Federal uh, Air Force Base that is extremely impactful in the technology industry. And um, so, so Miss Young Love, talk about technology and will you champion technology for your district? Yes, sir. I absolutely will. Um, we have to have it. It's, you know, I, I had talked, I believe you and I had talked once before and I said, you know, maybe this is naive of me, but I, I think that given the proper um, setup for it, that we would have our sort of many Silicon Valley here. Uh, I think that it is possible here. I think that it would provide numerous jobs. Yes. And we could be a world-class area for that. Absolutely. And and, and I really believe that, um, uh, that, that, that your area has that potential, especially that yeah. district that you're talking about, because of what's located there, because of its proximity to Huntsville, Alabama, uh, mm-hmm. some of your counties. 
uh, it's just a could be a corridor of technology there. Absolutely. Um, with a lot of facilities already in mm-hmm. place and the education of the folks. Miss Young Love, what else would you like to share with the people, of the, uh, the listeners of the Man in the Middle podcast and the people that are considering voting for you? Uh, what would you like to uh, finally share with these with with the folks? Okay, I want to share with them that while yes, I would first of all want to put into place Medicaid expansion, and secondly, uh, take care of um, education in our state, make it you know first class education in our public schools, and do away with the voucher program. Um, I would also want to tell them that I am totally against um, a licensure bill that my opponent had introduced back in January, and she quickly put into subcommittee that targeted 27 professions in our state. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. It's amazing. It, uh, let me get my piece of paper. I had to, I okay. had listed out the actual professions that it would affect, and this I think will scare people when they hear it because. You know, sometimes it just it seems like such a far off idea until you tell them that uh, this is going to affect your, you know, uh, profession. Miss mm-hmm. Boline um, co-sponsored a bill with along with House Representative Martin Daniel uh, that would take away the requirements for licensure for different professions such as accountants, architects, engineers landscape architects, interior designers, barbers, cosmetologists, funeral directors and embalmers, contractors, home inspectors, plumbers, locksmiths, real estate brokers, land surveyors, soil scientists, auctioneers, those involved with pesticides, rental location agents, private investigators, polygraph examinators, individuals engaged in fire protection sprinkler systems, Servicers of fire extinguishers and related equipment, alarm contractors, private protection services, geologists, tattoo artists, body piercing artists, real estate appraisers, and professional or employer organizations. I see that list and I just go, oh my God, liability, liability, liability. No kidding. Can you, I mean, this is extremist ideology. Let's just call it what it is. There it are, is. And I don't yeah. get how even a Republican could say, hey, Look, what a good idea. Right. Can you imagine driving across a bridge designed by an unlicensed engineer and and manufactured by or produced by an unlicensed contractor? Would mm-hmm. anyone feel safe? And they, they say, well, before before you utilize their services here, here just sign this little waiver of liability. Yes, that's very popular now, these and liability it's, it's, waivers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's the equivalent of what the, what the state is asking the teachers to do right now. Well, if I'm driving across a a bridge, I don't have time to sign your waiver. Right. You don't have time to give me your waiver. Right. And if your bridge fails, who's held well, accountable? I'm out of luck. Right. You know. Yeah. Because state hired somebody who was not qualified, did not maintain their licensure, right. meet the requirements. You know. This just opens up so many avenues mm-hmm. for fraud. Yes. fraud. Oh, can you imagine an unlicensed contractor remodeling your home? There's already a problem with licensed contractors remodeling yeah. your home. I mean, think about it. The majority of those concerned people who um, 
were involved in building, designing, mm-hmm. you know, homes, or like you said, bridges, anything like building, designing, selling, maintaining. It's it's craziness. And then think about you go to get your hair cut, you go to get your hair colored. Um, a, re- a local cosmetologist showed me and my campaign manager pictures of what can happen when somebody doesn't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm was scary it showed a picture of one girl you could see inside her scalp because it had eaten the chemicals had eaten away at the top of her head right just freakish stuff right okay let's let's let them open shop and even if they went to a beauty school did they go to a beauty school that is accredited that is licensed or did they go to one that said, hey, we'll make a quick buck. They don't have to be licensed anyway. And then we'll we'll make our money and then we'll close down when the heat gets on us and we'll go to another state. Right. It, it, it really is. It's just the extre- an extremist ideology. It is, it is preposterous that it's even been proposed in the Tennessee state legislature. And, and we're coming back. Yeah. And, and I'm sure, well, not if you win, it's not, I hope. So. Well, if I win, if it comes back, you'll hear one older lady with uh, blonde hair screaming at the top of her lungs that, are you kidding me? Right, right. Now, showing pictures of the people that have had their scalps almost removed from chemical burns. And so, you, you okay, you want to let an unlicensed contractor build your house? Yeah. Well, well let me okay. ask you, yeah. Let me ask you this, Miss Younglove. You, you, you're now becoming very familiar with the state campaign finance laws. Oh, yeah, and so I'm guessing that that the state campaign finance committee would be perfectly acceptable to accept a finance report that's been prepared by an unlicensed accountant. Sure, and if you want to say as a business person get a loan to do something that's a little bit iffy, and you had an unlicensed accountant. They might even be able to make your profit and loss statements look good when, in fact, they're not. Oh, without a doubt. Right. Well, right. One of my cousins is a CPA down in Chattanooga, uh-huh. and he just hit home on this. The things he talked about, I was like, oh, Michael, I didn't even realize, you know, some of this. He's, he's like, think, think about it, Sheila. Yeah, they could totally screw over a bank. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, providing, you know, uh, fraudulent information uh, on a business. Absolutely. And they have no concern of losing their license because it's not required. That's exactly right. Yeah. What an insane idea. Miss Young Love, thank you so much for bringing that to the people's attention and the Man in the Middle podcast. Um, anything else that you would like to add before we go? Well, I do add that um, I, I know that this is a position uh, that – you know, is is highly respected. I want to bring honor to the position, but I also realize who I work for. I work for Joe everybody and Jane everybody mm-hmm. and not for the General Assembly, right. not for the governor. Um, I'm not afraid to make people mad if they, you know, if they don't like something that I say because I think that it's going to be bad for my district really doesn't bother me to tell them right so right i'm i'm very plain spoken i i really believe you are and i think that's your strength miss young love (laughs) 
I hope it's a strength. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining the Man in the Middle podcast uh, this week. And we look forward to uh, following you and, and inviting you back on once you're a Tennessee State Senator. Thank you. I'd love to do that. Thank you so much. Sheila Younglove, oh. candidate for Tennessee State Senate District 16. You guys go out and check her out Facebook page and um, and send her a little money if you feel like it. That would be great. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. The Man in the Middle podcast this week. I'm Stephen Reynolds. I'll see you next week. I was just.